0: I received a mailing this week that was referred to this strange period of COVID year two, the Delta variant, and general unrest as, quote, a liminal, a liminal space, end quote. Liminal comes from the Latin word for threshold. It's a place or point of entering or beginning. Now, I'm familiar with thinking of a liminal space as what might be known as a thin space, a place where the border between earth and heaven seems a bit more fluid, a bit more porous. Our beloved Camp Mitchell is often described as a thin space, a liminal space. But I'd never considered this period of not quite reopened, not quite shut down, unsure of the future. Never heard it referred to as a liminal space. Heaven can feel pretty far away these days. And the writer goes on to say that liminal spaces are ambiguous. They are a kind of transition or in-between, and as such, They are spaces that provoke our anxieties. Now, A quick look at the general level of anger and acrimony in our society's discourse would underscore the anxiety we're all living with. A vestry meeting a couple of weeks ago showed the level of anxiety that we're experiencing here at St. Peter's. I opened with what I thought was a well-intentioned question of how we get our mojo back citing declining attendance on Sundays, weaker than usual volunteering, and declining donations, I wondered how could we re-energize St. Peter's? In other words, I was wearing my anxiety on my sleeve, and that's never a good idea for a vestry meeting, or really any meeting for that matter. And what was surprising is what erupted from that was an outpouring of just general frustrations, difficulty finding Sunday ushers, Lack of fresh help at our busier-than-ever food pantry. Disappointment at not seeing some familiar faces for almost two years now, with no sign of it ending soon. The discussion was cathartic, but we left with no clear sense of how to get our mojo back. If anything, I think we were more exhausted than ever. As I reflected on the conversation, it occurred to me that we, as a society, as church, and possibly even as individuals, we find ourselves in the desert, in the wilderness. Like the Israelites in the book of Exodus, we are lost in a kind of metaphorical desert with no sign of the River Jordan and the Promised Land in sight. I've shared this observation with a number of folks in the past weeks and they've generally agreed to this description of our situation. So it made me want to go back to Exodus and look at some of the behaviors of the Israelites in the desert to get a sense of what we can expect during our own time wandering in the wilderness. Now, we're all familiar with the grumbling of the Israelites during their desert time. They frequently complained to Moses and his brother Aaron. What's particularly striking is how quickly they become disgruntled. It's no more than three days after crossing the Red Sea that they're complaining about the bitter water. By the middle of the second month out, so 45 days or so, They've actually grown nostalgic for their time in captivity. If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, we sat by our flesh pots eating meat and ate our fill of bread. Now put in that context, I think the fact that we're a full year and a half into this, our grumbling can be excused, maybe a little. But there is a real risk of being nostalgic for what might be called the bad old days. Would we really want to go back to the division, fear and anger that characterized most of the pre-pandemic times? Was our life in captivity in Egypt really that much better? A liminal space. It's a threshold onto something new, something fresh. It's a time of great creativity. How can we use this time in the desert to grow stronger in our faith? Now we're told that God provided the hungry, grumbly Israelites with manna, for the rest of their time in the desert. And we're talking 40 years here, and they're only 45 days into their journey. He sends quail as well, so they can have their fill of meat. This doesn't stop the grumbling, though. Just a few verses later, they come to Rephidim and are again without water. They cry out, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're very dramatic. Moses strikes the stone, and they drink to their fill. And mind you, they're still getting their nightly delivery of manna. And I had imagined regular quail landings, yet they persist in their grumbling. And it makes me wonder what enduring gifts from God are we overlooking in our lives? Where are we missing our own regular delivery of beauty, of grace, and complaining about stuff instead? The Israelites made Mount Sinai some 50 days after crossing the Red Sea. Only 50 days out, and they have their most intimate encounter with God yet. God comes to the mountain. They are told not to walk in this now hallowed ground, this now holy ground. Moses receives the commandments. For the remainder of their existence, the Israelites will never be closer to God. And you'd think that this moment of divine intimacy would sustain the Israelites for years. But no. No. Moses is delayed on the mountain for 40 more days. The Israelites grow afraid. They grumble again. And the result is the golden calf. Come make gods for us who shall go before us. Moses has disappeared. 3 short months after crossing the Red Sea, just 40 days after meeting God, they fall into the ultimate heresy. They worship other gods before the Lord their God. You know the result. Broken tablets. Massacre by the Levites, a new, more contrite Israel. During this time, I found myself looking for maybe new programs or new classes, ways to fill the void while in the wilderness. And I realized that in a way, these are my own golden calves. Diversion that seek to distract me from what Spirit may actually be calling me to do. So if Exodus is a metaphor for the ways we respond to a time in the wilderness, in the desert. Let's see how we match up. So far we have general murmuring and grumbling. I think, yeah, some of that. Nostalgia for our time in captivity in Egypt. Remember the good old days of 2019? Forgetting God's blessing in our lives every day. Forgetting our daily delivery of manna from heaven. I know I'm doing that. Forgetting. Finally, molding our own golden calves, things to worship because we're anxious that God's forgotten us. So what are you worshiping these days? Sometimes they think we worship our own anxiety to watch it grow and consume our lives. But to be honest, things can be pretty sucky these days. The endless, inane debate over masks and vaccines, the insanity of our political discourse, the instability of our economic situation, all our reasons to become disillusioned, to murmur and grumble a little. And we should, because we are in the wilderness, and there's no sign of the River Jordan yet. Which gets us to Job. Now, Dr. Bowman set a high bar last week in preaching about Job, her visual of images in the reading the throne room, Job on a pile of ashes, and little children in Jesus' arms that stuck with me all week. It's a risk to wade back into the book of Job so soon, but here goes. I think in this reading, we're made aware of a different way of reacting to suffering. In fact, if you think about it, there are three ways that we can respond to suffering in our lives as far as God's concerned. And and let's face it, suffering is a critical part of the human condition. One way, we assume this must be God's will and we accept it. And this is how many religious institutions would have us act, faith at all costs. But we've seen the tremendous trauma that can result from pushing down any response to pain and suffering, or worse, blaming ourselves for our own pain and suffering. Second, we could reject God, call bull on all of it, and deny our faith. The psalmist seems right on the verge of that today when he opens with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this seems too radical. And besides, would suffering be any easier without God? Third, we have Job's response. In today's reading, he declares he's both unwilling to accept his suffering passively, but also unwilling to give up his faith. He's not, going to give up, he's not going to accept his suffering without saying something, but he's not going to give up his faith. And in fact, the most frightening thing for Job is that he can't find God. We hear it in the core of the reading in verses 8 and 9. If I go forward, he is not there or backward. I cannot perceive him. On the left, he hides and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. See, it's this absence, perhaps more than the, the, uh, this, this loss of... Sorry. It's this absence, more perhaps than the suffering that Job endures, the boils, the sores, the loss of family, the loss of livelihood. It's the absence of God that causes him to cry out. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness and thick darkness would cover my face. Job forces us to go deeper into the desert and in the person of a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ to know, truly know that God is with us because he suffered. He suffers with us. God. Let's be clear. Things make it worse. The outlook is tough at best. The Apostle, remind, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans that the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, we know that nothing, nothing, not injustice, not suffering, not even an overwhelming sense of God's absence can separate us from God's love. We can't be separated from God's love. We may be in the wilderness, we may be in the desert, but we're not in this desert because of sin or because God is punishing us. And we are called to fortify ourselves, to strengthen ourselves during this desert time. We're called to a deeper connection to God and to each other, to replace murmuring and grumbling. We're called to find a deeper faith, to grow intimate with God in our own Mount Sinai moments, maybe they're in nature, in art, in scripture, in community like this. We're called to resist the temptation to worship other gods, to create golden calves, be they fear, anxiety, money, work, or just general busyness. And finally, and most importantly, we're called to constantly give thanksgiving for the blessings we are constantly receiving. Where do we find our own nightly manna deliveries? Let's use this desert time, this liminal space, not caught up in fear and anxiety or anger and frustration. Let's use this time to dream to imagine a promised land better than anything we've seen before. Thanks be to God. Amen.